I once had the opportunity um, to go on a mission trip when I was in college to the Philippines. Um, I traveled there with a group called New Tribes Mission. We were on a remote island called Palawan, um, and it was an incredible opportunity to travel, to be in the jungle, to go to all of these unreached people groups, and we traveled with a missionary. His name was Jody Crane, and Jody would eventually become the president of, of New Tribes Mission. But New Tribes uh, philosophy of ministry is they train up people who are willing to go anywhere, and they give them all this cross-cultural training, and they send them out to tribes that have never heard the gospel. I mean, completely unreached places where there is no, no translation of the Bible or of the gospel into their language. And so I was traveling here with Jody. I didn't really know <laughs> the type of person that I was with until we, we started the trip, and um, I was there to play basketball and to draw a crowd so that Jody could share the gospel with them. Jody moved with his family from Florida uh, to the jungle um, years previous to when I had been there, I would, I'd say about 15 years previous, and he literally walked into the village, and he said to the people, I've come to tell you the words of God. He had learned that much in their language. And so they said, wonderful, uh, we will build a house for you. And so they built a house for him, and that took a while. And during that time when they were building his house, he started to learn their language, which is called Takbanwa. Only about a thousand people in the world speak Takbanwa. So here's a man who's investing his entire life so that a thousand people on the other side of the world with his family, his wife, and his children moving into the jungle. Over time, he learned their language, and he learned enough of their language to be able to share the gospel in Takbanwa. I think it took him two or three years to get to that point. And so he started telling them the story of Jesus, much like we've started in Luke. And he started at the beginning, uh, how... Really, he started before the beginning of Jesus' life. He started in the Old Testament and told them all about how God created the world. They didn't know where they were in the world. They had no idea. They'd never seen a map. Uh, they didn't know that they were a part of, they knew they were part of the Philippines. They didn't know beyond that what that meant. And, um, and so he started there, and then he started telling them all the stories of faith and how God had been preparing his people after they had sinned. And he had brought all of these prophets and kings, and yet the people were broken, and they needed a redeemer. And so then Jesus came. And I want you to imagine, I love the way Liz read that passage. I'm so appreciative of that. Um, I want you to try to imagine hearing this story for the first time. So for these people, they are being introduced to Jesus, and they find out that the Messiah has come, the Redeemer has come. And through the lens of all of history, as they've been waiting and been re-understanding history through the lens of this one who would come, now the baby has been born, and he's being raised, and and now he's in the temple. He's He's being tempted by Satan, and and now he's calling his disciples, and, and over time, Jesus becomes their hero, and they are just invested in the story of Jesus. They can't believe how amazing this Jesus is, his teaching, his miracles. This is a, this is a village uh, where I, w- I had the opportunity to, to go to this village and be there. Uh, I still remember it so vividly. Um, the life expectancy in that village is still around 42 because of malaria and other diseases. So when Jesus is healing people, this really means some of them. They don't have doctors that really know how to heal things. And so Jesus is just, he's just mesmerizing their minds, and they're falling in love with Jesus. And then they reach this point in the story. And Jesus is moving toward Jerusalem. They, Like the disciples, they don't understand what's going on. They just know that he's the Messiah. He's the king. And then he gets to 
Jerusalem. He enters the city, Palm Sunday. They're crowning him king. They're, they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're excited. This is the coronation moment. And then this happens. He's crucified. And they get angry with Jody. Why have you come here to tell us this? Why would you... Why would you come all the way here to tell us this terrible thing that has happened? The king, the one we've been waiting on, has been, has been crucified, and they, they stopped working. They, they stopped working. They, they mourned. They, they declared, like the queen dying, and they declared a weekend of mourning over Jesus' life. And the chief came to Jody, and he said, Jody, if this is not the end of the story, you have to tell us what happens to Jesus because our economy is suffering because the people won't work. And so Jody had timed it to where the Sunday he was going to tell them was on Easter Sunday. And they got up early that morning, and he told them about what happened to Jesus, that he was not dead, but he was raised from the dead. And they, they threw this incredibly massive party, and I'll tell you more about the end of the story next week, I promise. Okay, so after Friday, Sunday is coming. But I want you to go back to the Friday, I want you to see it through the lens of people like these people who had never heard anything about Jesus and recognize, as Liz did while reading, just the depth of the pain of what happened, the, the incomprehensibility that God Almighty would send his son into the world to save us and that the mission would be to be crucified, to be crucified that the king would be crucified for our sins. We have gotten so used to the story. It feels like a seminar that our boss is asking us to go through again at work sometimes to us. That we're like, I've heard this before. I'm ready for 201, 301, 401. You never get past the cross. The cross is the gateway into the kingdom, but the cross completely colors and typifies everything about being a Christian. The kingdom of God is cross-centered. It, far from being incidental to the message of Jesus, Jesus came for this moment. This is the climax of his ministry, the crucifixion and the resurrection. We've finally gotten there at the end in the Gospel of Luke. You may or may not know this if you've traveled to London, but the northernmost intersection point on the tube where you then go to Oxford and other places north of England is called King's Cross. King's Cross is an intersection point on that line. And after you go through the King's Cross, you can go to other places. But in order to to use the tube system and to get into those areas of England, you must go through the King's Cross. And for you and me and for everyone who ever lives, this is the one place that everyone, when when they die and stand before the Lord, they must go through the King's Cross. What you've done with the King's Cross and how you've responded to the King and his cross ultimately matters where you end up in eternity, as we see with the thieves at the end. The cross is the major intersection point in the Gospel of Luke. It's the major intersection point for all of God's story of redemption, and it's the main intersection point for every human being. Whether they acknowledge it to be true or not, it is the intersection point of all of humanity. So today we're going to look in detail at the King's Cross. We're going to look at, first of all, just as Liz read through it, just, we're going to experience the King's Cross in verses 26 through 38. 
Then we're going to consider the death of King Jesus, which is driven home for us in 44 through 56. And then we're going to go back to the middle of the story, and we're going to look at the, the two thieves and their response to Jesus in 39 through 43 and ask ourselves the question, are we with the first thief or the second thief in our response to the king on his cross? So first of all, encountering the king's cross in 26 through 38. So the first thing we encounter here as we, uh, we read Luke's description of Jesus' crucifixion is the weakness of Jesus as he begins his journey. Jesus is already weak. This is not the first part of his suffering. On this day, he's already been beaten. He's already had the crown of thorns. He's already been mocked and spit upon. Uh, it has been a long night. He has not gotten any sleep. He's been on trial through several different kangaroo courts of of human beings who are trying to judge the, the true king. And he's very tired. And so the Roman executioners demand that a foreign man named Simon of Cyrene carry the cross of Jesus. Luke calls the, calls the place of Jesus' crucifixion the place of the skull, which is where we get the English word Calvary. So I wonder how many Baptists or Presbyterians that go to Calvary, Presbyterian Calvary Baptist Church, know that the name of their church is really Skull Presbyterian or Skull Baptist. It's probably not something that's well known, but um, we don't know where the skull was geographically, but you need to understand that the Bible never tells us that Jesus was crucified on a hill or a mountain. It was probably just a nondescript lot that no one wanted that they donated for crucifixions. This is probably the lowest of the low geographic area that you can imagine. That's where the Son of God was crucified in a no-name lot outside of town. Who is Simon of Cyrene? He's an unknown person prior to this. All we know about him is from his name that he's from an area of North Africa, which would be modern-day Libya, where St. Augustine of Hippo would come from about 350 years later. So though this moment was a surprise to Simon, it was no surprise to God. In Mark 15, 21, Simon's sons, Alexander and Rufus, are mentioned, giving us the indication that Simon not only carried Jesus' cross, but became a Christian and discipled his children in the faith, and they became uh, pillars of the church, Alexander and Rufus. Verse 27, a large number of people were following him, including women who had been faithfully journeying with Jesus. They were weeping and wailing as they watched what happened to their Lord. I think it's really important for us to notice that in the entire Gospel of Luke, women are never put in a negative light. Not one time. Not one time are women rebuked in the whole Gospel of Luke. Now, that doesn't mean that women uh, don't sin or that men need Jesus more than women, but Luke is going out of his way to show us that women are fully included as equals in the kingdom of God, and that Jesus valued the ministry of women, and that they were there with him on that day, not just there on that day in the crucifixion, but there in the burial, and there at the resurrection. Women are in all three scenes as some of the key eyewitnesses, which is entirely Christian. You would never find something in antiquity written in this time that would mention women, probably period, as being there, but certainly having something to say because they weren't, their testimony wasn't accepted in court. So the authenticity of this 
speaks to us that women were there, but also we need to notice that women were a vital part of Jesus' new community from the earliest of days. Verses 28 through 31, Jesus goes on to say to the women, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves and for your children. And basically what Jesus is saying here is this, is that today the tree is green. Today I come to bring you life. I am the life giver. And if they're going to do what they're going to do to me in just a few hours, then you can only imagine how bad it's going to be when the tree is dry. Just imagine what these people are going to do to you when the tree is dry. And this is a foreshadowing of what would happen in Jerusalem in AD 70 when Titus would come in, the Roman emperor, he would send his men in, and the atrocities that we're currently witnessing in the Ukraine perpetrated by Russia, as horrible as that is, don't hold a candle to the atrocities that were worked uh, on the people of Jerusalem It was one of the worst and most barbaric actions in the history of the world. And Jesus is talking about what would be happening 40 years later. So Jesus is, in verse 32 and 33, crucified alongside two criminals. We'll talk about that in detail a little bit later. Verse 34, they divide up his clothing and start playing a gambling game with his his cloak and some of his other pieces of his clothing. So the icons or pictures don't usually show us this. But Jesus was crucified naked. Uh, Women were there. Children were there. You have the Son of God, the Lord God Almighty being crucified naked is the utmost picture of humiliation that he was put through on that day. So as Jesus is being crucified unjustly, the Jews and the Romans show no remorse. They're caught up in the revelry. What you have here is this revelry in the atmosphere, that they're, they're having fun in this moment, at the expense of Jesus Christ. The cupbearer for the king, again, is mockery. The Roman soldier holds up vinegar for him, which is what the poorest of the poor drank. The placard to announce his kingship. If, if the emperor came to town, you can only imagine the pomp and circumstance and the signage that was put into that moment. Here, a makeshift sign of mockery is nailed to the cross. Here is Jesus, king of the Jews. Interestingly, it is both the description of his criminal charges, and an accurate description of his true identity. He's there with a sign over him saying he is the king of the Jews. So an absolutely key question, where is Jesus' heart and mind in the midst of this moment? If you want to see how amazing Jesus is, there are many places you can look, but I challenge you to find something more amazing than this. That in the moment that he is being murdered, unjustly, having never done anything wrong, the Son of God come to die for sinners. He says to those who are are mocking him and killing him, he says to his Father, forgive them. Forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. The heart of love that Jesus has for sinners. And you may wonder in your own heart sometimes, can I really be forgiven? for my sins. If God really knew all about me, and, and he does, can I really be forgiven? My sins are, are bad. They're deep. They're, they're awful. Can God really forgive sins? There's no greater sin than murdering God's son. Even these men were, can be forgiven 
if they'll take hold of that forgiveness by faith. There's no sin that is greater than the cross of Christ. This proves right there that the heart of God for sinners and the action of God for sinners is greater than you can possibly imagine. You cannot outsend the cross of Christ. Jesus' love is even greater, much greater than your sin. This is the scene at the King's Cross. I just wanted to, us to experience that together, to experience what it was like there on that day in that moment as Luke describes it to us. So the second aspect I really want us to get into is the links that Luke goes to to describe to us that Jesus died on the cross. He really wants us to know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, for it to be confirmed that Jesus was dead at the end of this. And he goes through at least five confirmations. He first of all gives us a cosmic confirmation that darkness covered the landscape when the Son of God died. In the middle of the day, it's completely dark. Creation is speaking that the Son of God is dying. So there's a cosmic confirmation. There's also a Jewish confirmation, second of all. The curtain is ripped into from top to bottom. This was a curtain that was of tremendous weight. I mean, you can't imagine how heavy this curtain was. And it is ripped into from top to bottom, showing us that it is God the Father himself ripping the, the temple curtain. That temple curtain divided the holy place from the holy of holies, it was a place where the high priest could only go in once a year and only through these very strict ceremonial processes. But now God is saying that everyone through Christ, because the blood of Christ that's been shed, can have access to me. There's a Jewish confirmation. There's a Gentile confirmation. The centurion in charge of Jesus' death in verse 46 sees when Jesus breathed his last and said, surely this man was the son of God. There's a confirmation for Gentiles. There's a confirmation from the crowd. Just the bystanders that saw the spectacle. In verse 48, it says, They left beating their breasts in a show of grief. They started out in this hateful, mocking revelry, and by the end, they are wondering, Oh my goodness, what did we just do? Did we just kill the Messiah? I mean, it's, the earthquakes are happening at the same time. In, in other books, we learn that the, the darkness is settling in. The temple curtain, be, they are wondering, what have we done? The crowd confirms this is no ordinary death, that Jesus has died. And the fifth is there's a new church confirmation, a new church confirmation, that there, the women are there, and they could not have appeared as eyewitnesses because of their gender, but in the church, they are equals, and they give this confirmation that Jesus has died. They go to the tomb with Joseph to see where Jesus was laid. So these five confirmations make sure that we understand as readers, as recipients of the gospel, that Jesus died. Jesus died. Now, why is that so crucial for us? Well, first of all, we need to know that he died so that we can be prepared for the next part of the story. It's not the end of the story. You can't be raised from the dead if you're not dead. So we need to know that he's dead. But also, we need to know that Jesus died on the cross because he died on the cross for a reason. He died to pay for our sins. He died as a substitutionary atonement. He died in our place so that if we look upon him, the death of the Son of God, who had done nothing wrong, and he pays the price for the sins 
of all of those who would look to him and call upon him, then we can know that if we look to him, we can live. If we look to the Son of God on the cross and we confess our sin and we repent, then we indeed can receive and will receive forgiveness for all of our sins. Just as Jesus says, Father, forgive them, he will say that to his Father about us if we will trust in him. That is why Jesus died, and it's imperative that we know that he died. And then we move beyond this to how do we respond to the king's cross? Well, on that day where Jody told the story, the people mourned. Uh, You do need to know the end of the story that Jesus was raised from the dead. If you've never heard this before, you need to come back next week and I'll go into greater detail. But there's a response that is required. You can't just read this story about the death of God's son and be like, well, all right, whatever. Um, that's, not, that's, not, um, that's not an appropriate way to respond to this. If, when God's son dies on the cross, you need to have an opinion. You need to care one way or the other. Are you going to believe it or are you not going to believe it? If you're going to believe it, then this is not a, a final destination. This is an inter- intersection point that leads you out into the rest of your life. And so we find this juxtaposition of two men that are hanging on the right and the left of Christ to show us two different ways to respond to Jesus. And I want to give J.C. Ryle a lot of credit for helping me understand this section. So, first of all, uh, what we see here is that the two thieves come into this moment alike in every way. As they enter in, they are alike in every way. They are common, broken men. They're common. They're broken. They are alike in their punishment. Both are condemned to die. They are both equally close to Jesus' cross. They're both witnessing the same person, the same story unfold. They're both there, equal proximity. Both have the opportunity to respond to Jesus. And we are like these men. We come in as common, ordinary people with a similar story. We're broken. We're created in God's image for something great, and and yet we're broken by the fall, and that sin has deeply marred us. We come in with the same story. We need forgiveness, and we need redemption. We're alike in the punishment that we deserve. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. For each and every one of us, uh, for our sin, we have a punishment that we deserve, and that punishment that we deserve is eternal separation from God. We deserve that for our sin. And we're facing that sentence. We've also received the same revelation from God about Jesus. It's the same gospel. It's right there for you to watch, to witness. And we have the same opportunity to respond to Jesus. We can either receive or reject the grace of God that is given to us. So they come in very similar in this moment. The second aspect here is their responses to Jesus are very different. Very different. The first thief responds to the king's cross with a hardened heart of unbelief. What does his unbelief look like? He, in a sense, stands over Jesus and says to Jesus, I want you to prove to us that you are God. There's no humility. There's no brokenness. There's no acknowledgement of his own sin. He takes the posture of standing over Jesus and asking for more from Jesus to prove that he's the son of God than he's already seeing right in front of him right now. He shows no grief over his son. His hard heart is hard all the way to the end of his life. 
He cannot see the proof of Jesus' divinity right in front of him. How can someone be treated like that and hang there and be forgiving those who persecute them if they're not the Son of God? This is the most unusual story. This is the most breathtaking story of love and, and care and compassion that anyone could ever see. So this is one way to respond to Jesus and his death. You can be right there next to him, but actually think that you're greater than him. You can, you can stand over him and ask for more proof than he's already given to you. Um, you can be unmoved and undeterred in your hard-heartedness. The second thief responds in a totally different way. He responds with repentance and faith. What does his faith look like? This is so encouraging. He starts with, don't you fear God? He's humble. He's like, good night. Do you, do you see what is happening here? Don't you fear God? And he says, we are punished justly. We are getting what our deeds deserve. He understands what he deserves for his crimes, for his, his sins. He deserves punishment. He's willing to accept that that's what he deserves. He deserves God's justice. He says, this man has done nothing wrong. He confesses that Jesus is sinless. He's done nothing wrong. He's the sinless Christ. And then he says simply, remember me, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom. This is faith. This is a very simple expression of faith. Remember me, Jesus, when you come in to your kingdom. So anyone who follows the, the path of this second thief will also be saved. Think about it. Humility before God, realizing you're a sinner, seeing Jesus as the Savior, trusting him by faith. If you follow the path of the second thief, you too will be with Jesus in paradise. And that's how Jesus responds. He says to the believing thief, the repenting believing thief, today you will be with me in paradise. And I want you to see how incredible this is. But that's it. How much time did the thief have to do a bunch of good things to impress God in between when he says, remember me, and Jesus says, you will be with me in paradise, and when the thief dies? No time. He had no time to do one single good thing, and yet he's saved. A hundred percent. He is with Jesus in paradise. How much of our salvation is based on the grace of God? All of it. All of it. There's not a single fraction of a percent that is dependent on your good works, on how you respond to him. If you respond in faith, trusting him, you will be with him in paradise. There's no, nothing else required of you. And even God supplies the faith that we need. How much of our salvation depends on our good works before or after salvation? None of it. And let me ask you another question. How much of our salvation is given to us at the moment of our conversion? All of it. You have all of the salvation that you will be given. It comes all at once. Growth takes time, but grace does not. Growth takes time, but grace does not. You have all of God's grace. And now you're immediately if you're like me, the, in, the inner critic is like, oh man, but what about this? But what about, and you can think of all the things, all the caveats and all the ways that that seems like it could be untrue because of all of these issues you have going on. 
and God just quiets you down and says, Father, forgive them. Okay? You are forgiven. You receive all of God's grace all at once. It is all given to you at the moment that you trust in Christ. Growth takes time. It will take time to grow in the grace of God. It will take time. It takes time to make the cross our new life intersection point. It does take time. We are so prone to moving down other paths and making, uh, making out other life integration points for ourselves. It, the growth takes time. The grace does not. But the growth takes time. It takes time to continue to come back to the cross and say, Jesus, I want to be cross-shaped. I want my life to run through the king's cross. That gate that opened up a new life to me in God's kingdom, I want it to be centered on you, Lord Jesus. Help me. I love the songs we sang this morning. Draw me near, near, blessed Lord, to the cross where Jesus died. We, we, we say that. I mean, I hope you say that 10,000 times in your life, a million times. Draw me near, God, back to you. You know, within uh, suburban America, there are a lot of other more acceptable life integration points than the cross where Jesus died. You're not going to find our culture encouraging you to live a cross-shaped life. Uh, there's another holy trinity in suburbia that is calling out to you, and that is um, career, family, and downtime. Career, family, and downtime. Career, man, if I can just do well enough at my job, I could be whole. I could really be somebody if I can do well enough at my job. But that's not enough. I also need to do well enough in my family. My family, I need to love my my kids and my wife, and I need to, to, to love them well and to become all that I'm, I'm supposed to be as a dad or a mom or a, a kid in the family. And, and we believe that we can be whole again if we can just have a good family life. That's not enough because we need to also have downtime. We need to have fun. We need to be able to go on vacations. We need to be able to have hobbies and be able to have enough disposable income it's not just enough to have a career and a family and downtime. You need to have all of them. And this whole notion of a well-balanced life, as emotionally healthy as that can be at certain points when it's taken to its end, and you make the Holy Trinity of suburbia your new life integration point, um, God's going to call you on that lovingly. Eventually, you're going to have a breakdown. And that's kindness of the Lord to you because that is... Uh, a phantom view of the world. It is elusive. Either A, you'll never get there. Uh, B, you'll get there, but then you're constantly falling in and out of, am, am I balanced or all that? Or C, you'll get there and you'll still, the problem is going to be, um, like the old country song says, wherever you go, there you are. Like the problem is you're still there and you're broken. Like Solomon, you can have everything and still not be able to enjoy any of it if you don't have Christ at the center of your life. And so Jesus calls us lovingly in this passage not just to enter through the gateway of the cross. Certainly he does that. He calls us to become cross-shaped, to have a new life integration point, as Francis Schaeffer originally said it. 
a new life integration point around the cross that then colors everything else in life so that we can say no to the Holy Trinity of suburbia and say yes to Christ. And as we grow in Christ, as that growth takes time, and that grace is all sufficient for us in the midst of that, we can eventually, eventually over time, we begin to turn back more and more quickly to the cross where Jesus died. Listen, the cross will enable you to not only enjoy the blessings that God gives you, but when the suffering comes in suburbia, and we all know that it does, the lie of suburbia is that you can somehow live such a well-balanced and well-ordered and well-maintained and well-resourced life that you can avoid suffering. And it's a lie. And so what you have is you have the Son of God who shows you the way. He suffers. He suffers with us and for us, and he calls us, and he said, I not only came for you, but I did not try to escape all the suffering of your life, but I went there all the way. So that you can know that when you're suffering, whatever it looks like for you, it's not as great as what Jesus suffered for you. We are the only ones who have a Lord within all of the world religions who suffered as a human being in our place. And so he is the Lord, he is the king, the crucified king, as we make him our life integration point. He makes sense of all of our lives. So for us as Christians, let's endeavor to A, really place our faith. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you find yourself in the position of the first thief, You've never placed your faith in Jesus. You've never humbly asked for forgiveness for your sins. This could be the day. Don't leave here like the first thief. Leave like the second thief. But the second thief died immediately. I don't, I don't think, I hope none of us die immediately after this sermon. You have a life to live. You have a life to live. Let's live that life in light of the cross. Let's live cross-shaped lives, putting Jesus at the center, the king's cross, the new life integration point that takes us out to new destinations in life. Let's pray. God, your grace is um, overwhelming. It doesn't really make sense to us that we could be forgiven of all of our sins because of the merit of what your son did for us. But Lord, as we see what you went through for us on the cross, uh, first of all, we cry out, thank you, and we worship you, and we glorify you that you opened up the gateway into the kingdom of God for us through your blood. And we also humbly ask that you would help us to shape our lives around you, around the cross of Christ, and around the resurrection as well, which we'll talk about more next week. But Lord God, would we be people who are near to the cross where Jesus died? Would you transform us and make us more like you? Lord, we ask in Jesus' name.